Hi, thank you for downloading the Listening to Civil Society, a Catalyst for Change, the discussion podcast, brought to you by Fixers. Fixers is a UK charity that helps give young people a voice, using their experience to make a positive change for themselves and those around them. On the 27th of June 2018, Fixers hosted a listening event in London, where key speakers were invited to give an insight into the power of listening in today's society. The event was chaired by Sir Martin Lewis, the president of Fixes, but in this podcast we also get to hear from Nick Coldry, the vice president of Fixes, who is also a professor of media, communications and social theory at the London School of Economics. As well as Nick, Jim McNamara, the professor of public communication at the University of Technology in Sydney, joins the discussion alongside Margot Halsey, the chief executive of Fixes. If you would like to find out more information or would like to get in touch with the charity, then do visit our website, www.fixes.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Do think of questions as you, as you listen to the, uh, to the talks, um, because we have allowed quite a chunk of time for uh, an interactive discussion with, uh, with the two people we have here, Nick Coldry, Professor of Media and uh, Communications and Social Theory, um, at the London School of Economics, and uh, he's also a vice president of uh, Fixers, I'm delighted to say, and uh, Dr. Jim McNamara, who's professor of public communications at the University of Technology um, in Sydney, and, uh, and of course Margot Horsley, our mighty chief executive of the Public Service Broadcasting Trust, or Fixers, uh, which is our public face, um, as it were. And uh, we're going to kick off with Margot. I'm not going to say anything about our speakers because you've all seen it in here, so let's not duplicate any of that. And we'll kick off with Margot, and Margot will link directly into the, into the speakers, and then I'll come back for the Q&A later. So see you in a moment. Thank you, Martin. So I'm going to talk, first of all, about fixers and what we do, um, and then I'm going to hand on to these gentlemen over here so that they can give you the academic, academic context for it. So, um, what is Fixers? Um, well, Fixers are young people um, who have used their experience to change something for somebody else. So something's happened to them that they don't want to happen to somebody else and they become a fixer. So they use their past experience to fix the future for themselves and for other people. Um, everything at Fixers starts with a personal story and it builds into a conversation. Um, as an organisation, we have no view uh, on the issues that they choose. Um, we don't judge. We simply help them to find their own voices and to use them. We build relationships on trust. We listen, which is very important. And sometimes we listen for a long time before young people want to start working with us. Um, we accept them as they are and work with them simply to make them feel valued, to help them understand what that means. Um, and there is a fact here which I keep reminding people. They are their own experts in their own experience. You cannot take that away from a young person. And the very critical thing is that they tell their story. They don't tell ours. That means they don't tell the story of the organisation they're linked to. They simply talk through their own experience. Some fix of facts for you. There are about 23,000 of them all over the country. They work on all issues, and that's all issues, from FGM right through to mental health, through to LGBTQ, um, all sorts really, prisoners, anything you could imagine. Um, they come from all backgrounds. Um, there are a large proportion of them coming from some of the most deprived areas of the country, that's 44%. Um, and we're in 99% of local authority regions. Um, there's a phrase I've used which I think probably Nick will come to. He's, he talked to me about unimaginable change when I sort of um, first met him. Um, and we did some work on sex in schools. You'll be aware there was a change in the law about how um, sex education happens in <coughs> schools. And it came through uh, over about 11 months. We were sitting at the heart of that change with young voices, uh, not organisationally driven, simply driven by the um, individual experience of those young people. We're currently working with the APPG on food poverty, trying to do something similar. So watch this space. Um, we also run a series which is called Feel Happy, and we've worked on um, CSE, body image, gender, autism, anxiety, eating disorders, and all of them, as we bring these young people together, they amplify those voices and they take them into the places where the people who make decisions are. 
Um, we've done a lot of work in the NHS. Um, we're working with school nurses and we're working with um, the police college. My bigger question is how do you enable organisations to change? How do you enable them to listen? Where does that structural or that system change take place? Because we're sending lots of people out now uh, with, their, with their lived experience, if you like. Um, they are being listened to as individuals between two people, but how do we get an organisation to really change the way in which they work? I'm going to stop there and hand over to Nick. Thank you very much. Um, what I want to do for the next 10 or 12 minutes is take the essence of what FIXES does, as uh, Margot's just been describing, um, which I think is really important. Since I found out about it about two years ago, I had this strong sense right from the first conversation that FIXES is not just doing something good and right, it's doing something that's deeply right, fundamentally right. And we have to get at what, at what level it's working that is so fundamentally right. And that's what I want to focus on for the next 10 or 12 minutes. And the starting point is to think, for me, about something a lot of people are now worried about, which is are we living through a crisis in democracy? A lot of people, not just academics, people all over society are worrying that something's going deeply wrong with democracy. That for a long time we've assumed democracy is the default setting. It can only get better. We can only get more of it. But what if we're now living in a period when exactly the opposite is true? That actually what is now going on all around us, even though we struggle to make sense of it, is that democracy is going in reverse. It's not de-democratization, it's de-democratization. How do we deal with that? How do you think about that? Now the interesting thing, this is not the first time in history this sort of crisis has been going on. There was a period in the 1920s, particularly in the United States, but it also was thought about a lot in uh, Europe too, a crisis when mass media took off. The crisis was not about is democracy going in reverse, but is society going in reverse? Is democracy even possible under these conditions when there's so much media, so many people listening, so many people shouting on the streets? Is it even possible? this dream of democracy. And at that time, two really interesting things happened. First of all, this was the period when PR, which is Jim's specialism, was born. The idea this communication could be done smarter emerged out of this crisis. But the other thing that's often forgotten that emerged out of the same crisis was a vision. And the vision was of a great political theorist and philosopher, John Dewey, who took head on the problem, but was not prepared to take the pessimistic view. Some people thought democracy is impossible. It's a myth. Let's just pretend it works. He said, no, this is too important to pretend it works. We have to make it work. And his vision came from a certain question he asked about where is the public? The public's there somewhere, but it's eclipsed. It's in darkness. We can't see it. We can't get at it. He asked, what is the public? What is it that prevents us actually seeing the public? We know it's there somewhere. Why, are, why can't we get in touch with it? And he argued not that we should control the public, stop people speaking, stop people imagining, but the exact reverse, that the cure for the problem of democracy is more democracy. And he summed that up in a beautiful phrase. That although we think we've got a problem, the, the public's not there, we actually lie in the lap of an immense intelligence, which is all of us. But how do we tap into it? How can we get at this civic intelligence, this public intelligence that is there because we meet it every day of our life in every conversation, but we can't somehow become more than the sum of our parts. And yet that was what democracy was meant to be about. So we're not doing it. So just to sum up the sort of crisis that we're all very familiar with, we know it's standard view now amongst political scientists, sociologists, there is a deficit of trust in all sorts of institutions. Some do a bit better than others, but overall there's a massive decline in trust, in expertise, right across society. 
When trust declines in the long term, it affects something really important, which is legitimacy. People not only do not trust this or that particular person, but they turn their back. They say, I'm never going to trust anyone from that organization ever again. So the legitimacy organization crumbles. In fact, therefore, the raison d'etre, the basis of that organization existing, starts to be challenged. I think we're at that phase now, and that's affecting a lot of institutions, a lot of very important institutions, including, dare I say, even government. There are genuine fears about whether the way government now operates is <coughs> legitimate. And this is really serious, because it takes us to a third problem. Because if government and institutions are not seen as legitimate, they can't go out there and ask for knowledge. No one will answer them. No one will say, you have a right to ask me that. So governments stop learning. They stop reflecting. They can't get in touch with the people. And you see, we really do get to a problem with the public because the public's intelligence can no longer be tapped into because of the collapse in legitimacy. So putting it this way, no longer about a crisis in trust, but an even deeper problem about knowledge. How does a society know itself so that it can be democratic? This is the core problem. How can governments, but all institutions, how can they learn better from their citizens? But they have to do it by going back to the start of the problem, which is addressing the problem of trust, which leads to the problem of legitimacy, which in turn leads to the problem of knowledge. In other words, this is a problem not about particular bad governments. It's a problem about the very functioning of democracy. Can it work? Maybe we should be worried. It's not working. Maybe it can't work. 90 years ago, that's exactly what people were saying. So we have to think about the solutions. And one solution that comes directly out of John Dewey's more positive way of reading this problem is that the solution could lie back in the back room, as it were, in the, in the engine that generates the trust that makes democracy possible even in the first place, which is the question of voice. People trusting each other, people listening to each other. And I think there is, and this is something I've written about in my book, Why Voice Matters, from about 10 years ago, the core of the problem that we've been seeing rising for the past <coughs> 10 or 20 years is that democracy is based on the offer of voice. That is what it means. It's meaningless without voice being offered. But very often, at the same time, the voice is taken away. An attempt to consult, but it's not really meant, and people see that quickly. They never really ask, and even when they speak, it doesn't lead to anything. And that means we have to go back to finding solutions through voice. Voice is a core value in democracy, Let's suppose that's really true. Anything we value, we want to adapt so that we preserve and sustain that value. That's what a value is. So if voice is really valued in a democracy, we have to act as if we meant it, act as if voice really did matter, which means not, of course, everyone speaking at once. Voice in itself is nothing. We get nowhere by everyone speaking at once. It's about listening, me not speaking while you speak holding back so that you can speak, organizing things in general so that voice can be valued, I get, so I get the time to adjust my actions in response to what you've just said to me. That's what voice means. That's what valuing voice means. And of course, it means that institutions have to really reshape themselves to become ready to listen. Now, this is a very unusual way of thinking about the problem of democracy not thinking about the big organizations as a starting point, but by thinking about voice and starting to think about voice from the individual voice, the voice of the one single person who moves us through their story. What is special about that story beyond the particularities of that sound, that speaking? There's something more at stake. What is that? Well, I think there were some really fundamental things. When someone does not just speak, but they know that their voice is valued, that is, they've been listened to, and they can tell they've been listened to, not just because someone is angling their ear to them, but because that other person changes what they do as a result of what they've said. Then that person feels valued, maybe for the first time in their life. They feel valued. 
And if they feel valued, that obviously feels very good. They may have longed for that for a very long time. And when they feel valued, they begin to know what it means to have a stake in the society that values them. Because they hope that someone else could value them too. They want to think that they themselves would value someone else if that person spoke to them. They start to get the idea that this is a bigger idea. It's about valuing each other. It's not just about one moment. It's about the way society could actually be organized this way, which means they want to share that sense of being valued through speaking with others. There's something they have they want to share, which means that together with others, they want to ensure that more people get this chance because they know it's good. They know this is a good thing. How could it not be? It's transformed them. It must have a chance of tra transforming others. And they want to share that, which means they start to have a stake in changing things more generally for the better. Trying to organize things in society, in their club, in their workplace, in their school, so that things stay like this. Which means they start to think about solutions. And they go, and it might seem paradoxical, but it's not at all. If you follow through, it's this through in the sequence. From being transformed themselves to wanting to have a chance to take part collaboratively in changing things for others, to changing the way things are. And they may even start to trust, or at least begin to be ready to give the benefit of the doubt to the organizations, the institutions, the governments that they have not trusted until now. So this does create an opportunity. It's not just about crisis. Can a society, in the broadest level, all of us working together, build on these individual transformations that are so movingly expressed in all the particular stories of fixes? I believe they can. I believe we can think about society that way, but there's an essential precondition for that, which is that institutions at every level all of us involved in institutions, my own university as well, and above all government, have to think differently about the boundaries around their organization, not closed fortresses where no one is led in to speak, where voices cannot be heard. But they have to think more openly about those boundaries, and in doing that, think more smartly, more knowledgeably, about what their responsibilities are as people who manage organizations. We may be at the beginning of a rethinking what an organization is, as an organization that actually feels responsible for listening to people well. Over to Jim, who's going to put a lot more detail <laughs> on those bones. Thank you, Nick. Um, I particularly am looking at listening in organizations, because as we've heard, Vox Populi, the voice of the people, is fundamental to democracy. In other words, voices, but voice must be valued uh, in order to have any, any effect in society. Um, so I, um, about 2013, I, I spent a, a life working in communication for government and corporations and then transferred to being an academic. And I was always very curious about what organisations did in terms of engagement and communication. In 2013, I being in early 14, I began uh, a research project that I call the Organisational Listening Project. Um, and you're welcome to have these slides and the links on the bottom, sorry I just went ahead, the links on the bottom here uh, will take you, that's a free downloadable report, so is this, uh, and that's a book I've written on the topic. Um, and I'll just talk briefly about a couple of stages of this research. But in setting the scene, Nick's really said it and, and Margot said it to some extent, we, all the research is showing a, quite a severe decline in trust in governments and incorporate, even in NGOs. Uh, so institutions in our society that have played a central role, there's falling trust, there's also falling to participation, a lot of disengagement and, and so forth. Questions about legitimacy, which Nick has said. Um, and we saw in many instances recently some quite landmark demonstrations that governments are out of touch with people. And one, of course, that you're very, very familiar with here was Brexit. Now, I was working with the UK government uh, doing research, not funded by the government, but working independently. The UK government in the prior year had spent £40 million on research. How can you spend £40 million on research and, and predict a Remain vote and not know what people are thinking? 
And that got, me, that got me thinking that something is wrong here. If they're spending all that money, and by the way, they spend 700 million pounds of your money on communication, 40 million pounds of which is on research, and yet they did not know how people are feeling. Across the Atlantic, another great landmark decision. How did this happen? We're all still scratching our head. How, how did this happen? But when we look at the post-Trump election research, what we're finding is it was more a vote against than it was a vote for. It was a vote against the Republican Party and against the Democratic Party and all of Washington DC because people were fed up. I think the devil himself or herself could have stood and been elected President of the United States because people just wanted change. They were not happy. So, you know, communication allegedly is two-way. We talk about it's defined <coughs> as a two-way process. We talk about dialogue. We talk about engagement. These are all buzzwords in government and in corporations today. Social media by its nature is meant to be social. So we got tired of the old mass media that was very top down and now we have social media, but I'll give you a few findings in relation to social media. As Nick said, democracy itself comes from that wonderful Latin phrase, vox, vox populi, the voice of the people is meant to inform decisions. And more recently, we've got governments saying the right thing. And this is what made me intrigued, Gov 2.0, open government, open policy, we are listening to you and yet there's signs that they're not. Voice matters, uh, and as Nick says in, in some of his work, voice, when Nick writes about voice, it is the practices of speaking and listening, but too often voice is interpreted only as speaking. And I found that very interesting. And even definitions, Robert Craig, a leading communication theorist in the US, says communication is fundamentally speaking and listening. And what I found in my, the first stage of my research, which was a, a very wide literature review, where well, I started off looking at the professional practices like government communication, public relations, corporate communication to find out what they said about listening. I looked at 16 leading textbooks on public relations which is theorized as two-way communication and I found the word listening in the index of only one. Hmm. And I found only one paragraph in a 464-page textbook. And even then it said, we need to listen in order to understand our audience so we can target them better <laughs> with our messages. Um, what I found is that organization, how an organization can listen is actually ignored in, in the research right across the field. With, interpersonal listening is studied very extensively in therapeutic areas, psychology, psychi psychiatry, sometimes in leadership studies. But how an organization listens, and I'll talk about why that's important, is not studied at all. Now, I'm not trying to anthropomorphize an organization. An organization is clearly made up of people, and people actually do the listening. But there's two characteristics of large organizations that make them very different. The first one is they have to listen at large scale. So if you're the UK government, you potentially got to listen to 40 million adults. Not all at once, hopefully, as Nick says, but over time you should, in some extent, be prepared to listen to them. But even in a department that may have 100,000. So these, these organisations are not having to listen to 2, 3, 20, 30 people. They may have to listen. I've, I've, I've analysed a consultation that had 127,400 submissions. They averaged 12 pages. That's 1.5 million pages, approximately, of text. They had no tools to analyze it, so they didn't. This is what I'm finding on the inside. And because organizations have to listen at large scale, what happens is listening, it is an interpersonal function, but it's delegated in an organization. It's delegated out to various functional uh, units. So how do they perform? How do, how do they listen? What do they do? So I set out in stage one, and I looked at 36 corporate and government organizations in the US, UK, and Australia. I did a huge amount of uh, interviews. I did. Um, quite a bit of uh, observation ethnography because what they told me and what they actually did did not always align. Um, the second stage was after I finished the 36 case studies which took nearly two years. The UK government very nicely <coughs> said they were interested and invited me to come to the UK in 2016 so I spent eight months working inside the UK government. Um, and I originally was assigned to work with the Department of Health but I arrived here in May 2016 and on the 23rd of June something happened and sudden and Theresa May took over office and I'm not sure what she's doing since but at the time she acknowledged that the government was clearly not listening 
And suddenly my little research project, instead of being one department, became 17 departments. Uh, and, and I did actually go to number 10. Uh, and I'm not claiming total success, because I presented my findings in number 10. I'm not convinced anything has changed. So <laughs> I've got work to do. So what are these delegated functions? Where does an organisation listen? I wouldn't pretend these are all of them, but I looked at a number of functions. So clearly social and market research, going out and doing research, is an organisational form of listening. But more specifically, public consultation. Governments do lots of public consultation. And why? The whole purpose of consultation surely is to listen to others, not to go in and say we know what to do. Correspondence units, people, you know, the Prime Minister's office gets over 100,000 letters a year, mostly in email. They're never analysed. They just go in there and someone writes a token reply. Complaints, never analysed as a, as a, dealt with, I'm not saying they're dealt with, but they dealt with at an instrumental, functional level, but over the course of millions of complaints about various services, this is people speaking. What's the pattern in that? What are people saying? Is there common problems? Customer relations, public relations or corporate communication, social media and internal communication. So look, all of those functions exist in most organisations and that's what I looked at. So I was trying to be fairly inclusive and look at where does the voice of citizens come into a large organisation, government or corporate. Before I quickly show you some of the findings, um, I'd just like to share my definition of listening because there's huge confusion over what listening is. Is it agreement? Do you have to agree to listen? I say no. But on the other hand, is it the same as hearing? My wife will tell you absolutely not because I hear her often and she says I don't listen. So there's something more about listening than there is with hearing because we can hear a lot of sounds. And I went to the ethics literature, I went to interpersonal literature, psychology literature, a lot of places to come up with what I call the seven canons of listening. And the very first one is recognition. Uh, Axel Honneth and a number of others and Charles Husband write about this. In other words, who do you recognise as having a right to speak and be listened to? Because I found no organisation that did not listen sometimes. But what they often did is listen very selectively. They listened to some people, but in other cases they simply didn't know they existed or didn't listen to them. And this is really important that if we want voices to have value, I guess to some extent my, my work is working on both ends of the spectrum. We've got to maximise and optimise voice, but we've somehow got to deal with the reception of voice. So recognition, getting away from selective listening. Acknowledgement, the, the first Obama campaign, and I did in a previous book interview the people who did this campaign, Jay Rossbars and Ben Self and others, and what they found from psychology was the absolute fundamental of fast acknowledgement. Any time someone contacted the Obama campaign or the administration, you got an automated email within 90 seconds. Now, of course, people were not naive. People knew that these were machine-generated emails. And I interviewed people who got them and said, well, aren't they valueless? And they said, no, because at least I know my voice arrived. It's there. Whether something happens with it or not, I don't know. But in many cases, you think about when you think, you've all bought something online, right? You bought an air ticket or something online. Everyone here, I'm sure. Think about that moment that you put in your credit card number. And you're entering it and you're a bit nervous, right? You enter that credit card and then you click submit. And then there's that horrible moment where you think, has it just disappeared into cyberspace? Will I never hear again? What will I do? Is it a scam? And then bing, there's a ping in your inbox and you go, acknowledgement. You've, you've been acknowledged and it's fundamentally important and yet we don't do it very often. And then there's simple things. I define listening as you must pay attention. But also you've got to do more than just pay attention. People often uh, are emotional. People often are not highly literate and Governments and corporations have a way of only acknowledging certain voices that are very professionally expressed in a certain format in a government submission or a template. And so we've got to actually interpret what people are, are saying. We've got to give it, act in good faith. And the aim is we've got to get to understanding. Nowhere am I saying agreement, but out of all the literature, Roger Silverstone and others said, we've got to acknowledge, we've got to pay attention, and we've got to try to understand, even if we disagree, I love the work of Hans-George Gadamer, um, a philosopher who, taught, who defined openness. And he says, one must be prepared to hear what is against one. 
Even if you don't agree, you must be prepared to hear it. And then very, very importantly, we've got to give consideration to what we are, we are, we are told. And finally, there's got to be a response of some appropriate type. And I chose those words carefully from the research because it may be disagreement. It may be what the government cannot do. This is often the case. It's limited in funds. You know, should we give the NHS another $50 billion? Well, maybe we can't. And so governments have sometimes got it. But what they've got to do is, and take this away, you're welcome to critique it if there's a better definition, but I'm finding this is what I weighed up my research against, giving attention, acknowledging, trying to understand, giving consideration, genuine consideration, and responding appropriately. And if you use that yardstick, and I'll quickly share the findings, what did I find? Well, it might shock you. Um, when I looked at research, so how did Brexit, how did the misunderstanding of Brexit happen within the government? Because it was a unanimous prediction of a Remain vote. And I was working in the Cabinet Office. They were so confident, nobody had bothered to look up the legislation of what had to happen. They said, let's not bother. It's going to be, it's going to be a Remain vote. Uh, how did this happen? Well, first of all, most of the research done by big organisations is quantitative. You're not people, you're statistics. You're reduced to a few psychographics and demographics. And so my question is, how much of, the, of your story can be told in statistics? People don't tell their life story in statistics. Governments and corporations do. People tell their life stories and their, their concerns in words. And you'll see why that's important in a moment. A lot of polling, small samples, 1,200 to 2,000 people in polls. And often they were paid panels. People were paid to fill out surveys. I asked the Cabinet Office, who the hell spends their weekend filling out surveys? Are they typical Britons? I don't <coughs> think so. You know, young people in particular have got better things to do. They're not at home filling out surveys. So, of course, you're not hearing from a rep. They never heard from a representative sample of the population. Um, second key finding was, of the $700 million, and I'll talk mainly about government in this case, but corporations, the figures are similar, but of the $700 million they spend, most of it is spent on campaigns. Now, why is that significant? Well, campaigns, in very simple terms, is what the government wants to say when it wants to say it. So of that huge amount of money supposedly on communication, it's predominantly the government speaking and telling you and I, well, not me, I'm an Australian, I can ignore it, but telling you what to do, what you should do, and how you should feel. Social media. I find it stunning that here is a platform that people's conversations are happening every day. Not statistically reliable, sometimes slanted to negative, but nevertheless it is conversations. It's a chance to listen and see what's out there. Most organisations, including government, use social media purely for posting their own messages. Public consultation. I went into this so hopefully. I went out with the Department of Health and I went out with industry consultations. I sat through the planning. I read the submissions and thought this should work well. But a couple of, I identified at least 10 things and I'll just tell you a couple of them. First one is almost all consultations by the UK government and by the US government are framed with a set of questions. Only the questions they want to know. If you want to say something else, sorry, you're off topic. Is that consultation? Is that listening? So they set a narrow set of questions that here's what we want to know. So right away we framed the debate and I was quite critical of that approach. They attract mostly the usual suspects. So typically here, gov.uk, we put a notification of a consultation online. Um, you can't actually submit there, which is interesting. You have to go somewhere else. A lot of the departments use different platforms and they sit and they wait for us to write submissions. So, Professional organisations can... You know, who writes submissions? Professional organisations. Who writes the best and the loudest submissions? The big, powerful lobby groups that can afford lawyers and public relations professionals to write those submissions for them. What about the marginalised groups in society? What about the disadvantaged groups? What about the less literate? What about the people who are just too damn busy raising a bunch of kids and working to pay the mortgage? They are not going to write submissions. So, fundamentally... And that's complicated by the fact there is no outreach. Outreach, I use that general term to say, if you want to consult with people, get out there. Go out <coughs> to where the people are and smell the air, look at the street. Um, one of the in interesting ones I found is uh, the UK government has got a plan, as you probably know, to build a high-speed train from the southern ports to the north. 
and they've done a huge amount of public consultation, very congratulatory, self-congratulatory of all the public consultation, except they never left London. They waited for submissions to come in. So my question was, what about the pig farmer at Tamworth, that the train's going to go through his back paddock? What about the historic village, you know, all through the Midlands and north of England, Roman ruins, and this, I saw the route, proposed route, um, and by the way, all the consultation, the route never changed either. That was interesting. Um, and they said to me, oh, we're going to build a big grey steel wall, sound barrier, past the historic villages. I said, have you asked the people in those villages? Well, no. I can forecast people with lying down in front of bulldozers and not allowing these walls to be built. So no outreach. The silent majority out there uh, is just simply being ignored. No acknowledgement of submissions. And yet we did implement this in Department of Health. A lot of my research was action research to try and find solutions. We found that it cost about $12,000 to have an auto email system that any time someone lodged a submission or came online to their website, they got an acknowledgement. Not a big expense in the scheme of things. But the saddest thing of all I found is that very often submissions and correspondence are actually not analysed at all in some cases. Now how does this relate to voice? Well, submissions are when people sit down and take a lot of time same with a letter, to write a letter or to write a submission and you would really hope that someone is paying attention to it and giving it consideration. There was no reporting back. Um, <clears throat> same with correspondence. It was processed individually. They, they replied to most people but not analysed. I'll give you an example in a moment. Complaints processed individually, not as well as we'd like obviously. Mid-Staffordshire, Gosport Hospital. You want to talk about listening on a vast scale and how serious it is, you think about some of those, those examples. Lack of listening can actually kill people uh, at the end of the day. Stakeholder engagement, uh, the phrase they admitted to me, the government people, was it's pitch rolling, a cricket analogy. We go out and do engagement to smooth the wicket so we can get what we want done. Uh, we don't go out to actually listen to what they, they want. And also one of the more technical issues I found, and this is being addressed, no knowledge management system within the entire UK government, no central point that that $40 million pounds worth of research comes to, it's all held on individual department servers and nobody shares it. All the public consultations are not shared and yet people do go off topic and in a health consultation they talk about immigration and something else and so no, all these data silos and we get very excited about big data in the world. And big data is largely a, a nonsense because big data on its own is useless. It's like ore, you know, rocks. It's actually the gold and the silver in the rocks that we're trying to find, the insights. So you've got to analyse it. Lack of data sharing and the lack of analysis skills. Um, just to give you one example, I mentioned the consultation. It was the NHS mandate of 2015. So when I came in 2016, I found out that there'd been this huge NHS mandate consultation the year before. And it was doubly interesting to me because I straight away said, oh, how many submissions you got? And they said, well, we normally get about 2,000, maybe 3,000. Oh, they said, but in 2015, we got 127,400. Now, my ears immediately pricked up. I thought, that something is clearly happening out there. Wouldn't you think if you normally get two or 3,000, next time you get 127,400, you think, wow, people are getting either very happy with us or very upset with us, probably not the former. But of course, they had no resources, and I'm not blaming civil servants at any point, because I work with these guys. The minister wanted to report in three weeks. They had no software tools to analyze 1.5 million pages of text. They had no training, so they tried to manually read a sample and they picked out about every hundredth one and read it and wrote a report for the minister. That is not listening. That is chronic breakdown of listening at an organisational level, despite the best efforts of a lot of well-intentioned people. So uh, coming back to <clears throat> solutions, I don't know whether this is all the answer, but where I've got to is I've theorised that what, what organisations do is create an architecture of speaking. Very sophisticated investments in speaking, PR, advertising, websites, social media. And what they need is an architecture of listening. <clears throat> I've deliberately used the word architecture because when you ask organisations about how they can listen better to their constituents, 
management's in love with technology. So the first thing they say is, oh, we'll get a bit of technology. We'll get a, a new database, and that'll fix it. And what I found in all of my now 48 organizations that I've studied is anywhere I've found reasonably good listening or some, some good intention of listening, I found no correlation with high technology, right? In fact, the most technologically advanced companies were among the worst listeners by my definition. So I thought that's interesting. What I then look for is, well, where are the other correlations? And the first thing I found is culture. An organization that was, as Nick talked about, porous boundaries. And Nick, an organization um, that was open to listening. And more specifically, what causes openness, what I found in most senior management in government and in corporates is they are relatively modernist. They believe experts know best. So ordinary people don't know shit, is what one senior public service said to Actually said that. People don't know shit. We, we, we know shit. We're experts. And so if you've got that kind of culture, if you're modernist in that high modern sense of experts know, the great unwashed don't know a lot, you can see how it creates a culture where they don't see any value in actually listening to people. In the 127,000, and I did make some strong points in my report, because we did analyse the 127,000 submissions using natural language processing, machine learning, and we identified seven findings that they'd never discovered. But what we found is, in submissions and text analysis, people self-identify. You know, I have been a nurse for 25 years, those kind of sentences. We found that 8,500 of those submissions were from leading health professionals, doctors and nurses. Another 6,500 were from patients and their families. Now imagine how difficult it would be to do a research project to go and get detailed evidence from 8,500 health professionals. It would cost millions and take years. Here they had sat down, taken the trouble to write in detail. Families and patients had written down their and we didn't analyze it. Yeah, this is tragic. So a culture is very important. There's politics of listening, and that goes back to that point about um, selective listening. Who do we listen to? We listen to some. And I actually had some people say to me in senior positions, well, we don't really meet with them because you know, they're pretty left, or they're, they're rat bags, or you know, we don't, they never agree with us anyway. They don't support the government, so what's the point of talking to them? <laughs> This is what they said to me. So we've got to have a, this is my eight elements of an architecture of listening. And technology can play a part, but there's got to be a culture. We've got to overcome the politics of listening. And then there's got to be specific things. There's got to be policies for listening. There are policies in all organizations, because I've worked in them, for speaking. <coughs> there are detailed policies about who approves statements, who writes speeches for the CEO, what, who writes on social media. There are detailed policies about speaking. There are none about listening. And so you need to put it into, people will only do what they are tasked to do. There's got to be structures and processes. So things like public consultation needs to be reformed. And then, of course, technologies can play a part. So I mentioned machine learning text analysis as one example, where people tell their stories, people express their voice mostly in words. And we've got to be, at, management tends to see numbers as the most important issue. I am not a number. I speak in words, same with you. There's got to be resources for listening and skills for listening, because if you have the technologies, it's no use having a smart car if you can't drive. And that was the issue in a lot of places where the staff were never trained, didn't have the skills. And last, and but eighth and fundamentally important, is I've used the word articulation. What an organisation learns through listening and analysing data and submissions from people has to be articulated into decision-making and policy-making. And this is where a huge amount of breakdowns occur. Very quick story. I was in the north of England. Um, I, I like to get out and go in the field. So I, they told me about health issues. So I went to Airedale <coughs> Hospital. I went out with community workers um, and two young women who were dealing with men's health. And men are really good at health. You know, We don't go to doctors very well. And they were worried about middle-aged men and upper-aged men and their health issues, and they found that nobody would come to seminars or workshops or come to the hospital. So they went to them. They went out to working men's clubs, and they very discreetly sort of got permission to have a room, put some notices on the bar. If you want to chat about anything confidentially, we're here every Wednesday afternoon on the third Friday, Wednesday or third Friday of the month. Initially, no men came, but after a while, men started to pop in. 
and started to talk and get information about their health. So I said to these two young uh, community workers, have you documented this? This is fantastic. You're having great success. Oh, yes, they said, we've written a, a report. Uh, we documented it all out over 12 months with evidence and statements from the men who came. And I said, where did you send it? We sent it to the NHS and the Department of Health. So I went back to 79 Whitehall and I searched for this report. Never found it. Didn't exist. And so this is just one little example of this articulation issue that even when those humans in those functions at the cutting edge, at the, at the meeting with people, are listening, organisations are notoriously bad because of these big structures and decentralisation and data silos in actually analysing the data. So I'm working at the area of like big structural reform inside organisations to try and uh, formalise the way of listening. <clears throat> A couple of quick positive things as a result of this research, the UK Cabinet Office, as we speak, has implemented a knowledge management policy where they're working through the lawyers about privacy and what data can be held, maybe collecting more permission-based data. And I'm not talking medical records, I'm just talking people's opinions, people saying, we need this or, you know, this is what I'm concerned about. The UK Government has appointed uh, two data scientists in uh, 70 Whitehall at the moment and they are driving this project and teaching people to do text analysis and they have licensed method 52 which is a uh, text analysis program they've developed a mapping tool that i looked at uh, last week that integrates 14 data sets um, that they can bring together to try and understand um, and it's demographic economic transport housing but they still haven't got submissions or correspondence any of that soft word data in there yet They've started to do social listening. Uh, they've implemented social tools to track conversations. Uh, and I mentioned they've implemented uh, text analysis. Not across all departments, but they're starting to. And these are just some of the high-level methods that are required to give your voice value, that when it arrives at an organisation, how will it be understood? How will attention be paid to it? Consideration, and how will it articulate towards policy and decisions? They're sort of saying they've increased outreach, but I haven't seen a lot of examples. A um, couple of final observations that I'd quickly make uh, that relate perhaps to fixes and other organisations. What's causing this? I mentioned sort of the idea that experts know best is still a cultural issue. Um, but also there's a, an old-fashioned view of democracy. Um, I don't believe democracy is in decline. But something is happening to it. And what I found is I interviewed a lot of politicians, not only in the UK. I managed to interview the Secretary General of the UMP in France, former Prime Minister of Italy, a lot of very senior politicians, and mostly retired politicians. Enrico Letta, who had been the Prime Minister for a period, now working at the Sorbonne, can speak more frankly. And what they were saying is they're two key reference points. Where does a politician listen mainly? Number one, their political party. Right? except there's a problem with political parties. You know that the total membership of the three largest political parties in the UK is 1.6% of eligible voters. That's three political parties, 1.6%. They don't <coughs> represent people at all. And yet it's the number one reference point for politicians in developing policy and thinking. So there's still a view. I asked politicians, what do they estimate? And they said, oh, probably 25% of the population uh, no, 1.6%. And traditional mass media. In number 10 today, they still work to the grid. The grid is a big spreadsheet, and it lays out all the events and all the announcements and when they want to time them and how they will do them, and it's all played to the major press radio and TV. And their evaluation in the Cabinet Office and in number 10 is all, how did we do in the press radio and TV? Now, we all know what's happening to audiences of press, radio and TV. How many of you in this room read a newspaper every day? 20 years ago, 10 years ago, probably all of you. I bet less, more than half of you don't read a newspaper anymore. Maybe you get to a newspaper through Facebook or something else. But they're playing to tradition. And my comment simply is, these are two institutions that are in severe decline. And yet, that's where our politicians are listening to. The, uh, civil service practices are also highly institutionalised and ritualised. Traditional organisations dealing with the usual suspects um, and focused on an architecture of speaking. 
So sort of my final point is, <clears throat> I don't think democracy is in decline, but what I do see is what I call a relocation of democracy. Democracy is not really being represented well by the political parties or the large traditional institutions, um, certainly not the mass media anymore. And I like, like Nick, I love the work of John Dewey, because I think even though it's written in 1927, it's very, very relevant today. What we do see in society is the rise of, all over the world, I'm seeing this, in the US, despite all their problems, the rise of social movements, the rise of community organizing. And so what I've tried to write about in my work is to try and shift attitudes within politicians and in the government to say, democracy is alive and kicking. Just you're looking in the wrong place. Democracy's relocated. It's back on the streets. It's back in the villages and in the towns is where it's happening. And somehow we've got to get our politicians to sort of move away from high modernist ideas of experts in London and Whitehall know best and that people um, can contribute. Um, and of course, organizations, though we need to work on both ends. I guess my final point is we need to work on both ends of the issue. We need to help people have a voice. We need to help people express their voices persuasively, intelligently, through videos and powerful methods, but we've also got to work at the other end of this problem to have a solution. We've got to help organizations, and I use that word deliberately, help. Rather than just criticize them, what I think is we've got to actually help them discover ways of listening better at scale uh, and help politicians to understand their social movements happening. When I was at the Department of Health, I, they were looking at youth issues and I asked them about fixes and I never found anyone who'd heard of fixes. Now that was a few years ago, I believe it's changed, but isn't that sad? You know, this major department, and it was doing consultations 48 a year, or 48 in the year I was there, and yet it wasn't going, it wasn't going out of London, it wasn't engaging with many groups. So I'm gonna leave it there. Um, the research is ongoing, I'm still learning, um, but yes, we're gonna change organizations from inside out as well as outside in. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast brought to you by Fixers. If you do have time, make sure you listen to part two, which includes a question and answer session based on the prior discussion in part one. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you soon.